0: A group of aldermen want Chicago to follow New York in requiring vaccination proof to go to events and restaurants. But the state's largest restaurant group disagrees. And Mayor Lightfoot points to businesses enforcing pandemic curbing measures themselves. And we'll go to the reporters' roundtable. This time, I'll talk to healthcare reporter Stephanie Goldberg and commercial real estate reporter Albie Galoon about why the drug ivermectin is a lose lose for hospitals, the uncertain future of Helmut Jahn's architecture firm and other news of the week.
1: You know, it's not a brand new idea, but in the context of a pandemic, it's interesting to think about a judge saying, I disagree with this, you know, medical opinion. Let's go ahead and and give a patient this unproven drug. What's the worst that can
0: happen? I'm Amy Guth, and this is Crane's Daily Gist for Tuesday, September 14th. They called, Win Trust answered, and helped more than 11,000 local businesses secure funding. Learn more at Wintrust.com slash DailyGist. Member FDIC. All right, it is time for the Reporters Roundtable, and I'm joined by Stephanie and Alby. You're both here with me today. Usually, there's some overlap between the stories of the two reporters. I can't think of any sort of overlap, but you both had really interesting stories uh, recently that I wanted to talk with you about. So, Stephanie, let's start with you. You recently wrote about a drug that is, I would say, to put it very mildly, causing some issues for hospitals, for patients, for courts, all of those things. Catch us up. What's going on there?
1: It's a controversial one. And yes, I hope there's no overlap um, between what Albie and I are here to talk about today. Um, so at this point, uh, you've likely heard of ivermectin. It is um, long been approved to kill parasites in animals and humans, um, but it's becoming very controversial because it's being touted by some, uh, namely conservative media personalities, as a coronavirus cure. Um, except it's not approved for that indication. And the FDA has been really, really straightforward. This is not safe or effective for COVID patients. Like We need to do some um, trials to figure out if that's the case. We'll let you know if that's the case. Until then, please do not take this drug. We don't know how how it interacts with other drugs, et cetera, et cetera. Um, That said, some patients are still demanding this, um, that hospitals administer it to patients. And It's controversial because of all the reasons that I just mentioned. Hospitals don't know how it's going to interact with existing treatments. Um, A lot of doctors on staff, um, or I should say clinicians on staff, don't want to provide it to patients. It's not approved, and they're concerned about, you know, what adverse reactions, if any, will transpire. Um, So patients are taking their demands to court.
0: How did the idea that this is an effective treatment for COVID? How did that first enter the? I don't want to say conversation because it's misinformation. But who, who, where, where does that? Can can we pinpoint kind of where that started?
1: Um, I don't know the exact the exact moment that this came to be, but. Um, I do know how it became popularized. I think, like, Tucker Carlson, we, we heard it from. We, a, a couple different Fox News personalities mentioned, uh, why aren't we using this more? There's a very, very small study that I'm aware of, and probably more, but but still very small studies that said that this might show promise, A lot of people have come out since then and said that's way too small a sample size, like 30 or so people. We really need more data before we start rolling this out, you know, for prevention or for treatment for COVID. Um, You know, it kills parasites. Like it's very different than what you would think of for a treatment that would would target a virus. And so there's just a lot more that needs to be studied on that front. And even one local hospital, actually, University of Illinois Hospital, said, yeah, we might participate in a clinical trial moving forward for outpatient use, um, but at this point, there's just not enough known to be giving this to patients.
0: Yeah. And, and so what stood out to you in your reporting on this? What what was surprising? Or-
1: um, a lot. Um, <laughs> but if I had to pinpoint one thing, it would just be like generally the court's involvement here. It's interesting. Like, um, you know, it's not a brand new idea, but in the context of a pandemic, it's interesting to think about a judge saying... Well, I disagree with this, you know, medical opinion. Let's go ahead and, and give a patient this unproven drug. What's the worst that can happen? Um, a lot, you know, uh, particularly like on the clinical side, but also like potentially like liability wise for hospitals. It really opens the door for you know potential negligence suit if uh, something goes wrong and it's very obviously caused by you know a doctor administering this drug on the premises of a hospital. Um, Judges are feel differently about this. Um, a couple examples, like an Illinois appellate court judge in July uh, dismissed Elmhurst Hospital's appeal. So, so earlier, a judge uh, said that Elmhurst Hospital had to administer this drug to a patient. Um, and when none of the physicians on staff agreed to do it, the hospital decided to find a workaround and actually grant temporary privileges to a doctor out in the community to come in and do it. Um, things went a little differently in some other cases. So, uh, downstate at Springfield hospital ended up getting uh, a ruling that said they did not have to administer the drug. Same thing uh, happened at, uh, an Ohio hospital, Westchester hospital. So just seeing different things play out. And it, it really is heart wrenching because, um, as one of the lawyers I talked to put it like, the patients asking for this just want their family members to be safe. You know, in a lot of cases, the the patient is in a comatose state and the patient's estate or guardian is trying, you know, to find anything that's going to work to help make them better. Um, They feel like it's a life or death decision. Like as as David Hyman, a Georgetown law professor, put it, whether it is or not, we don't know. Um, And then obviously you add in the complication of the politics here. Um, (laughs) There's another example that a lot of people probably read about this week. At an Amita Hospital in Norwood Park, where you know reportedly a group backed by QAnon is trying to get a patient at the hospital access to this drug, um, a spokesperson over over there said that they're getting hundreds of calls from people who are not necessarily affiliated with the patient, but who want her to have ivermectin, um, you know, without knowing anything about her care. So it really is sort of this battle of who who knows best. Is it the medical professionals? Um, in some cases, judges. Say no, not necessarily.
2: Is there can I jump in for a second? I have a question. Yeah, go ahead. Is there any precedent for this kind of thing? I mean, have have there been cases like this with other treatments in, in the past?
1: I talked to a lot of lawyers about this because that was one thing that I really wanted to make sure I understood. And there are some examples, like as it pertains to, you know, uh, cancer treatments or or AIDS. Um, nothing is exactly apples to apples because again, ivermectin is an approved drug just for different indications, but there have been instances where, where people have tried to find, you know, or tried to get access to it, a drug that wasn't approved, for example. Um, or sometimes it works in reverse where a doctor, you know, tries to get the court to allow them to provide a potentially life-saving treatment that a patient or the patient's parents perhaps don't want that patient to have. So, um, you know, it's. It, it, every instance is a little bit different but it's not a totally brand new concept it's just in the context of a public health crisis it's not something that we've really dealt with before
0: it, it kind of reminds me of the very circular debate around direct to consumer pharmaceutical marketing and all the data around there of you know particularly when we're talking about opioids of the consumer see an ad and you're like, Oh, I, I think that's a thing I have. I think, you know, I think maybe, and you're kind of insisting to your doctor that that's a treatment that you want. There's a lot of fascinating reading out there about it. But
1: the one thing I will say about that though, is that in this case, actually Merck has come out and said, maybe don't, don't use this drug yeah. for the treatment of COVID. So it is, it, the concept is relevant, but it, it this is really interesting. Like you've even got the manufacturer being like, listen, that's not a proven indication. Um, It's being tested, you know, hang tight, like we'll let you know if it is. But at this present moment, it's just not the
0: case. So interesting. Uh, It'll be interesting to follow that story and just how it plays out because it is, I mean, just the legal part of it, of, of the idea of a court not siding with a medical professional on it is just so interesting to me.
1: I do have to say, I, I talked to a medical ethics professor at NYU, Art Kaplan, um, who who really put it this way. He said, when doctors around the country ask me what they should do if there's a court order, he he says he tells them to defy it. Mm. Um, and then he uses you know this, this example. It would be as if somebody said, this is a quote: "I'm going to order you to give bleach to a patient because the president liked that at one point." Um, and so it, it really is. It's a question of who's who's directing the care here and how much. Should we be relying on patients to make their own decisions?
0: That's right. So interesting. I'm sure not the last time we will discuss it either (laughs) by any means. Um, All right. Like I said, I cannot imagine there being any overlap in your stories, but Albie, let's go to you. Um, You actually have a follow on an earlier story about a famed local architect. Tell me about that.
2: Well, uh, the story is about Helmut Jan, who is, um, most people know, died in a bike accident at the age of 81 back in in May. And I was trying to think of an overlap. And I don't even think he designed a hospital. So maybe he did, but I couldn't uh, I couldn't think of one. So um, in any case, so he died. Uh, there was a bankruptcy case that was filed by a company owned by Helmut Yan and, and led by him called Yan LLC. Uh, back in August. And obviously, that catches your eye as a reporter, because you're wondering if that's his business that is having financial problems after his death. Turns out that this was a separate company, um, not related, uh, not legally, um, I guess, not not the legal entity that owns the actual architecture business. But according to The lawyer in the bankruptcy case, it was a shell company that basically held the lease on Jan's office space um, at 35 East Wacker Drive. So that case is ongoing and I did some reporting on it. And then, you know, the question just came up, you know, what what happens to Jan, the architecture firm, after the death of this iconic architect who has been really the creative genius and you know visionary leader behind the company for so many years so i i just started to do some reporting and um you know it's interesting because he did designate a successor uh back in 2012 uh a gentleman who had worked for him for a long time uh architect by the name of uh francisco gonzalez palito and You know there was a fair amount of coverage about you know how this was kind of the beginning of the transition uh jan was 72 years old at the time and uh but but by 2017 um gonzalez polito had had left and i in, in i didn't notice that i did i couldn't find any coverage really of him leaving so it was um it was interesting that it happened so quietly And so fast forward to 2021, and it's unclear who really is going to take the reins of this firm and kind of be the rainmaker or the person who will go to clients, the architect who can dazzle them with these big ideas. Um, You know, probably not on the same uh, level as Helmut Jan, obviously you can't replace him, but Someone who can carry the firm forward. And so that question, that question is, is, we don't have an answer yet. And so that's, you know, that's really was the purpose of my second story, which was to ask that question. What is the future of this firm after the death of Helmut Jahn?
0: That's so interesting that the kind of the idea of naming a successor and then it's like not updating your will after, you know, that you're like, oh, that person's not in the will anymore, but I didn't update it. It's like that.
2: Well, I should be clear because, you know, we don't know what was happening legally and who he designated as a successor. Um, so that's just not that's not information that's available to me. But um, there's there's no one at the firm right now who has the stature. Um, that, that really, um, it, if you talk to informed outsiders in the industry, there's no, there's nobody there who has that stature, that kind of rainmaker status.
0: Sure. How big is that firm? How many people are there?
2: Well, uh, a- according to some public filings that I found last year, it had 24 employees. So it's, it's pretty small. And as far as
0: you're aware, are there any projects in the works with that firm?
2: Well, the one that I think a lot of people in Chicago know about is uh, it's called 1000M. It's a residential tower, 74 stories tall, and um, he designed it uh, uh, for it's at 1000 South Michigan, and he designed it a few years ago. The developers from New York began construction, and then construction, they actually did um, kind of foundation work. They never went vertical. And, um, it's still, so construction has been stalled. They don't have their financing. They kind of made some tweaks to the design earlier this year. And so that's a big question mark as to whether that will get built. Um, and, and so that's one, obviously, you know, Helmut Jan is, is known for many works, including the Thompson center and the loop, which is a a, kind of a hot issue right now because it's in danger of being demolished. He designed the, United Airlines terminal at O'Hare International Airport. Um, And he's got, you know, dozens and dozens of uh, really acclaimed buildings all around the world.
1: Albie, I thought this was such a smart story. It's like, it's so interesting, like reading it, sitting on my beat, because when something like this happens in the healthcare industry, like, generally you know where to look to find a successor, but like the concept of a architect and like what you do to fill those very big shoes. I just think, I mean, this is like not unique to architecture, but like a fairly unique situation that this firm is in now. And then I just have to say too, Gonzalez Polito's quote um, where he says, he calls him a comet. He says he was a comet. I just, I loved that. And like, you have to be, you have to be pretty special to be referred to in that way. So I thought that that was really cool.
2: Yeah, that struck me too. And and it is interesting because I was looking for um, other types of businesses that have this kind of issue. It's like fashion. Think about fashion designers. What happens after a fashion designer dies? Um, Anything that, you know, any kind of business that relies so heavily on the creative genius on one person, I think is vulnerable in, in some ways, unless there is somebody ready to step in and and take over and kind of carry on the person's legacy. You know, this is, um, there have been plenty of uh, architecture firms led by, you know, high profile, really um, successful architects. Um, There have been plenty of firms that have gone on and survived and actually thrived. You know, the most recent one that I mentioned in the story was Zaha Hadid, who is this Iraqi born architect whose firm is in London. She died in 2016. She won the Pritzker Prize I mean, she was a really big deal. But the firm um, she had a partner uh, by the name of Patrick Schumann who stepped in and you know I'm sure that the transition wasn't easy, but they're getting large commissions and they're still, you know, moving forward. This happened with Philip Johnson's um, architecture practice which is now, you know, led by someone else. Even Mies van der Rohe Um, You know, he passed his business on to three partners, including his grandson, Dirk Lohan, who, you know, went on to design the McDonald's headquarters in, in Oak Brook. And, you know, he had a successful career. So these these firms do move on to the next generation and they can still be very successful.
0: So I think the overlap between your stories then is that there's both a lot of there's a lot of wait and see on both of them. That's fair. <laughs> <laughs> there, I did it. Nailed it. All right. well, now is the time where we move to three stories not on your beat, but that caught your attention recently. Who wants to
2: start? I love reading New York Times obituaries, and the one that caught my eye was uh, the one on Willard Scott who died at age eighty seven. and um, maybe I'm showing my age, but you know he he was such a, um, you know, an iconoclast when it came to. Broadcast news, you know, he was the weatherman for the Today Show for a long time, and he really just kind of disrupted the whole, uh, the whole, uh, you know, practice of telling the weather on on the news. I mean, this this was a guy who played Ronald McDonald and Bozo the Clown before he became a weatherman on the Today Show. So um, I just thought he had a really interesting biography, and um, you know, he was. Um, was a very interesting story to read. Keep going. Another story that um, that is going to continue is um, you know this is obviously the beginning of the NFL season and it's the beginning of gambling season and it is pretty wild to watch how firms like DraftKings have come in and um, really kind of changed changed the you know the whole. Uh, spectating of, of NFL football. And uh, if you look at the what's gonna happen this year, I mean you can you can bet on so many different things in a football game. An estimated 45 million people are gonna be betting on NFL games this season. That's up from 30, that's up thirty six percent from last year. So it's gonna be interesting to watch because you know I think there's probably some unintended consequences down the road. You know, online gambling, it's pretty easy to do if you're underage. And
1: Is that the main reason for the uptick? Just the ease?
2: These firms have expanded their their offerings for the NFL. And, you know, it's obviously over the past several years, it's been legalized in many states, you know, like up in Wisconsin, it's still not legal, but in Illinois, it is. And so, I mean, it's astounding. It's an astounding business story, too, because... You know, DraftKings, which is probably the biggest name in the business, is just um, going gangbusters. Their market capitalization at the end of 2019 was just $2 billion, and now it's $26 billion. So it, it tells you something about what's happening to that business.
1: Do you partake, either of you?
2: I do not. I do not. But I have, I have four <laughs> sons who are um, into you know, watching NFL games. And it's a little bit, this gambling thing is a little bit like um, fantasy football was 15 years ago. It's it's interesting because the, the NFL, the commissioner of the NFL, Roger Goodell, was adamantly opposed to gambling five or six years ago. And then they've done a 180, um, and they realize that gambling, just like fantasy football, increases engagement. I mean, instead of just watching your team, instead of just watching the Chicago Bears, you want to follow five, six, seven other games. And so it's just another way for them to monetize their brand. So it's very interesting.
0: Yeah. Are, are you a gambler, Steph?
1: No, I also am not. Can I admit this? I'm not a huge NFL fan. That's fine. All right. I'll say it.
0: We all got our thing.
1: But, I, but I'm fascinated by the other aspects of this story.
0: The only sports betting uh, I'm into is horse racing, but I've I've been a horse racing person for a long time.
1: I do remember talking
0: to you about that der- during the Derby time. Yeah, I'm very good at picking winning horses. I gotta say, I probably just jinxed myself.
2: Being not a big NFL fan is not a bad thing. You have a lot more time on Sundays to do other things.
0: And you probably have like lower stress levels on Sunday because people get very emotional about the games. <laughs> All right. Uh, what's your third one, Albie? Uh,
2: this one caught my eye. It didn't happen in Chicago, but it happened in Richmond, Virginia. Um, they took down this massive statue of Robert E. Lee. That, um, I. It caught my eye because my daughter and I were down there in April. And you go down Monument Avenue, where all these monuments of and statues of Civil War heroes were. And all of them were gone including stonewall jackson jefferson davis but the one of robert e lee was there and it catches your eye because it's so tall it's 60 60 61 feet tall and then at the base there's all this graffiti and this has become kind of like a symbol of the black lives matter movement it really um is in such an interesting juxtaposition to see the statue glorifying This Civil War general, and then down below it, all this graffiti that was, you know, a lot of it glorifying or um, you know honoring people who had died at the hands of police, and so they they took it down, and um, you know are probably going to put it in a warehouse somewhere. Why do we care about this in Chicago? Uh, You know, Chicago is kind of going through the same thing, maybe not on the same level, but. You know, last year, Mayor Lightfoot uh, ordered two uh, Christopher Columbus statues taken down. And we've got, um, there's a uh, commission called the Chicago Monuments Project, which is reviewing all the monuments in, in Chicago, including, um, you know, statues of Abraham Lincoln and George Washington. So this is a debate that continues. And, you know, they haven't. The Chicago Monuments Project hasn't released any recommendations or anything like that, but um, I would, you know, I maybe in the next few months when they do, we'll have more of a discussion about this important topic, which a lot of people care very passionately about.
0: Yeah, there was a really interesting piece. I think it was in Time, but I could be wrong. About a month or two ago, about the Virginia Military Institute, kind of struggling with that same issue of their relationship to monuments on the campus that was so fascinating. It was a great, it was a very long piece, but it was very, very good. Steph, over to you. What are your three?
1: The first one that I was going to mention today is a Washington Post infographic. Um, and it takes you through like how the lives of five people were transformed by September 11th. Um, I don't know if you saw this one, but it was, I thought it was just really well done. And it's essentially set up like these little mini profiles of people who, um, like snapshots of like different moments in time for each of them. So like there's an office worker who was buried under rubble for at least 24 hours, a firefighter. Um, I have to say, I'm actually not even finished with it yet. I needed to take breaks in between. It's, I mean, it's heavy, but it's just, it's just really well done. And, and the way that the details are captured is, it just, it's just a really good, um, and really important read. So I would absolutely recommend it. Um, Obviously, in honor of the twentieth anniversary. Um, another story that I was going to mention because last week we talked about uh, we talked about this, and I thought we should talk about the development. It was just the Justice Department now announcing that it's suing Texas to try and block the abortion law, the restrictive abortion law. Um, it's kind of interesting. Um, Attorney General Merrick Garland talked about like the, the bounty hunter element of the law. And sort of warned that like that element could become something that's used or a model that's used like in other areas by other states, um, and sort of raised the alarm on that. So I I just thought that we should mention it since we've we've come full circle now. One, you know, we a uh, one week later. Um and then my last one it was a Wall Street Journal story, um that I'm personally interested in as a journalism grad, um, no master's, but still, uh, did you guys read the story? Uh, Journalism schools leave graduates with hefty student loans. Um, Really called out Northwestern University in this piece, um, talking about just generally like how much debt students leave school with and how that relates to like what they're likely to earn. Um, And so at Northwestern, students who earned a master's degree in journalism recently and took out federal loans, um, they borrowed a median of $54,900, which is more than three times as much as their undergraduate counterparts. So that's the biggest gap of any university with data that's available. Wow. So don't go to journalism school as a
0: journalist. (laughs) So the moral is, wait a minute.
2: (laughs) There are certainly not riches in the field.
0: Right, right. I know. Um, Okay, well, my three. Facebook has announced this partnership with Ray-Ban, and they're doing these glasses, right? After this idea, like, Google Glasses, really kind of a flop. The Snapchat glasses at least kind of looked cool, um, but not really widely... In use, but there these there's three different models of this Facebook Glass. There's no Facebook logo on it anywhere, and they have this idea that they want to capture what you're seeing, so you can touch the earpiece on the right and take a picture or a video. You can listen to music through, there's like speakers, which seems very annoying to sit next to a person wearing these glasses and just like speakers coming from behind their ears. Um, you can have a conversation. And I was thinking about how when Bluetooth devices first happened, you know, it took us some time to get used to looking at people like they were talking to themselves. Now they won't have a device. They'll just have glasses on and people walking around talking to themselves
1: we're just making it so creepy to be a human. I, it's already creepy enough, like with how easy it is to like stalk people with your iPhone. And now we're going to have like these movie quality glasses that you can just like film people with without their knowledge. Yeah.
0: I'm not into it. I, I know. I immediately was thinking of like the, the ethics and privacy concerns of being able to film somebody without them knowing. I mean, imagine you're like in a public restroom and you just like tap the side of your glasses and you're like, I mean... Uh
1: flip side though is obviously we've seen in like very recent memory instances where this has happened and been a very good thing so it just really goes oh man i I don't know know.
0: right because there's that too right that like that now that we all have a camera the role of the bystander is very different because it's not my word against yours it's here's the video and you know i think it raises a lot of questions and it's very
2: interesting it's like a screenshot of your life right
0: Yes, exactly, and and the way that Facebook is talking about them is very much celebrating that of like we want to sh- we want you to share exactly what you're seeing. And I'm like, eh, okay, we'll see how that goes. Um, there was also a piece in Wired that was really interesting about um, brain cells and how and gene expression related to learning and memory. It was so fascinating. I am not a geneticist, so I'm not going to try to give you the whole scoop on it. But um, essentially, it was looking at how Um, brain cells kind of break their DNA in order to acquire new information and to have new memories. It was really, really interesting. Um, And then I have to give a shout out to Ali Moradi and her story about Duncan Hines and the lawsuit about brownies not being fudgy enough. It was an interesting story. Um, It really kind of boiled down to the idea of milk fat and what, how you define fudge. So right now in a court, they are talking about what like making a legal definition for fudge and they have all these recipes and um, all this stuff in there. So essentially Duncan Hines and the recipe was using vegetable oil instead of milk fat. And that created the lawsuit.
1: I kind of wish that we could share with listeners just like the very long chat about what the headline on this piece should be internally. (laughs) (laughs) Occasionally you get one like that and yeah, SEO ruins everything.
0: I know, right? If only we could be so clever with headlines anymore. I know I checked in with Allie about that story and I just said, oh, that was such an interesting piece. And she said it was difficult to report. You know, you're you're kind of immersed in chocolate as you're, you're reporting on it. And so it was hard not to want to go make a bunch of brownies after her.
1: Allie is, just for the record, an expert brownie maker. I got to put that out oh, there. Yeah. I had no idea. I don't know if she made them after reporting that piece, but that is a fact
0: brownies or it didn't happen <laughs> she, she's gonna have to share share her brownie making skills with us all um well thank you both so much i appreciate it and we will all talk soon thank you thanks voila this is crane's daily gist today's top stories are next when change is constant, stability matters. That's the promise of forever ownership. Irvine Company's unwavering commitment to providing dynamic workplace communities to meet your evolving business needs. From Class A-plus trophy buildings with marquee addresses to energizing amenities, Irvine Company's dedication to your success lasts a lifetime, now and forever. Start exploring at irvinecompanyoffice.com gist. A group of aldermen want the city to require proof of COVID-19 vaccination or a negative test for those visiting public indoor settings like restaurants, bars, movie theaters, gyms and concert venues. But Mayor Lori Lightfoot has shut down the idea and seems to be putting it on businesses to enforce such pandemic curbing public health measures. Aldermen sent a letter to Public Health Commissioner Dr. Allison Arwady asking for such rules and it was signed by aldermen typically aligned with the mayor as well as council members who have been less aligned with her in the past. Other cities like New York, San Francisco and New Orleans have implemented indoor vaccination proof requirements, the group argued, and Chicago should do the same to prevent community transmission of the Delta variant as well as the threat of new variants before colder weather leads more people indoors. But when asked about the council members request, the mayor said the city's focus will stay on boosting vaccination rates. She said she was, quote, encouraged by the number of businesses and venues across the city that have required vaccination cards or proof of a negative test for entry. However, the Illinois Restaurant Association is against what the aldermen are asking. Sam Toya, who leads the organization, said he hopes the administration will work with the industry to take into consideration what he described as the unique operations of restaurants. He said, we're not really for the vaccine mandate, but we are in support of everyone getting the vaccine. It's extremely difficult for smaller operators that don't have the staff, training and financial." breathing room to start turning people away. The city's indoor mask requirement went into effect August twentieth, requiring everyone two and older to wear masks regardless of vaccination status. Dr. Arwady has credited that requirement for an apparent plateau in cases. As of Friday, the daily average case count is 466, which is down 10 percent compared with a week prior, according to the Department of Public Health. The city is vaccinating an average of just shy of 4,000 people a day, and while the number varies by the specific area of the city, of the city total population 56.2 are fully vaccinated. Aluminum reached $3,000 a ton in London for the first time in 13 years, amid expectations that supply disruptions are here to stay a while longer, while demand keeps rising. Aluminum has gone up about 15 percent over the past three weeks as supply risks increase throughout the industry, from bauxite mining in Guinea and alumina refining in Jamaica to aluminum smelting in China and beyond. Chinese producers were dealt a fresh blow on Monday, as Steelhome reported that Uh, Yunnan province will enforce production curbs starting this month in an effort to meet energy intensity reduction goals. Goldman Sachs Group said that smelters in the EU are also facing rising costs with both carbon credits and power inputs at record highs. And according to many participants at the Harbor Aluminum Summit in Chicago, supply chain disruptions will impact the industry through the rest of this year and most of 2022, with some projecting it could take as long as five years to fully resolve the issues. Chicago-based TransUnion is spending $3.1 billion to boost its credit reporting capabilities by acquiring Newstar, a data analytics company that specializes in digital ID verification. Newstar, based in Virginia, has annual revenue of about $575 million. Analysts expect TransUnion to do about $3.1 billion in sales this year. Newstar will help TransUnion expand into the fast-growing areas of digital marketing and fraud mitigation in e-commerce and diversify its core credit reporting capabilities. Newstar specializes in bringing together small bits of information, like device IDs and online behavior, in order to help identify people online on behalf of marketers. TransUnion employs about 8,600 workers, and Newstar has about 1,700. The deal is expected to close in the fourth quarter, and TransUnion said it expects $70 million in cost savings from combining companies, but it also expects a high number of Newstar employees to be hired. Salesforce CEO Mark Benioff told workers on Friday that the company will help them leave Texas if they wish in response to the state passing a controversial anti-abortion law. Benioff said in a tweet directed at the company's corporate community, quote, if you want to move, we'll help you exit. And Salesforce, which is the top maker of cloud-based customer relations software, isn't alone in addressing the issue. World Business Chicago and Connecticut Governor Ned Lamont have also urged businesses to relocate. The U.S. has sued the state of Texas to block the law that effectively bans abortion in the state after six weeks, calling it unconstitutional. And that's Cranes Daily Gist for now. You can find our continuous news feed at chicagobusiness.com. Thanks to both of my guests, Stephanie Goldberg and Albie Galoon. You can follow all of these conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to get on demand audio. And remember to rate and review Cranes Daily Gist. You'll also find hashtag Cranes Daily Gist on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Our show is produced by Todd Manley at Earsight Studios. I'm Amy Guth. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll meet you right back here next time.